Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to bring in John Burns now. He's founder and CEO of John Burns Real Estate Consulting. Uh, just 36 hours here after Donald Trump was uh, declared president-elect. Uh, a lot of uncertainty about what the economy is going to look like with him uh, in charge of it. And uh, John Burns here to talk with us about uh, housing policy in particular. Just remind Are us Are you here- kidding Sorry. me? Housing policy? <laughs> this is John Burns, folks, of Irvine, California. John Burns, there's only one question in the morning. Will your state secede from the nation? <laughs> I think there's a couple states that might want to go, Tom. <laughs> what 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 are the for sale signs look like? I mean, I'm sure you of all have done analysis of this in the last 36 hours. Yeah, and we Is just there had a, we a just, growth of for sale signs. Not not yet. We we just happened <laughs> to have yet. our we happened to have our annual conference yesterday here in New York, so we de- we debated this, and. Um, it's a mixed science. I think we're going to the the immigration policy. If it changes, is going to have some negative effects on. This would be housing. from California to Canada. Uh, well, I'm talking about yeah, from California to Canada. Uh, but people don't realize that immigrants here have been more affluent than the rhetoric has been, and they've mm. been big home buyers here in New York and in California. Particularly, they prefer new homes. So there'll be there may be a hit to demand somewhat. Interesting, seriously. Yes, and then on the cost side, clearly we already have a labor shortage. So uh, anything that restricts labor from coming in here to build homes is going to hurt even more. What uh, what can the president do uh, to influence housing policy? What what uh, what kind of responsibility does he have there to shape housing policy? So for so for the first time ever, the president of the United States completely controls mortgage policy. In my opinion, they they appoint uh, HUD as a cabinet position, which oversees FHA. Uh, Cordray is up uh, the CFPB in 2018. He gets to appoint that. The FHFA, which regulates Fannie and Freddie. Mel Watts up in 2019, if he'll even stick around mm-hmm. that long. Um, those guys all set mortgage policy, and they're all appointed by the president. Have we heard much uh, from President-elect Trump about uh, about housing? About I mean, he's a, he is a, a real estate magnet. Uh, has he talked much about how he intends to shape policy? Uh, neither candidate talked very much. He did give a presentation to the National Association of Home Builders a couple months ago, and he said all the right things to get elected. You know, so what, what's really going to happen here? We we really don't know. He is from home building, so we know he does understand the industry. Uh, is there a bubble in any segments of real estate right now? We spend all day, John Burns, talking <laughs> about the distortions of interest rates and the real and nominal yield. How does that transfer over into your world? So so there's no doubt that the extended low interest rates have pushed prices up beyond what I consider to be unsustainable levels over the long term. But it's more significant here in Manhattan. Uh, you know, and interestingly, Billionaire's Row is probably the one where, where prices are falling the most. And Trump Tower happens to be on Billionaire's Row. 
Uh, but you've got San Francisco, Seattle, Denver, a few other tech markets that are a little overheated. And I think there are some bubbles forming there, mini bubbles. You bring up Trump Tower. We were joking earlier about all the security surrounding it. Does that stand to, to change the valuations in that neighborhood, having this uh, becoming, as John Tucker was joking a few moments ago, White House North? <laughs> well, it, the prices were values were already he- heading south. I think most of the buyers in that building and those buildings around there don't live there full time. You know, these are billionaires. That's their second, third, or fourth, or fifth home, and it's a place to park mm. cash. So. I, I don't know whether or not the, right. the security is a big difference. John, you do brilliant work on the granularity of this nation's real estate. If I ran into you in the Denver airport, <laughs> what is the John Burns nugget right now within your 40, 60, 70-page PowerPoint? Yeah, the, the, the housing market is slowly recovering. The entry-level buyers are coming back. And I think now that we have a little mm-hmm. clarity, I think um, – it should, it should continue to grow. The big thing for housing, though, is the health of the economy, and we're seven years in, and I don't know how we're going to go another four years without a recession, no matter who got elected. So we, most of my clients are pretty cautious over the next few years and, and moving forward cautiously. Let me ask the arch question, John Burns. I get it four times a week, and I never have the right answer. You do rent or buy. What say you? Rent. This, we are clearly shifting towards a rental economy, and it's not just young buyers. I'm even seeing it, or my staff is seeing it, at older homeowners selling their homes and moving into rentals. And you don't mean just New York and San Francisco? You don't mean no. just six zip codes? Well, I think it's more significant in those zip codes. But you're but, talking about Topeka, Kansas, rent or buy? Uh, neither. <laughs> but, 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 well, be careful. Come on. Be, we have a, me. a great number of listeners in Topeka. Okay, let me rephrase this. Hold on. Let me rephrase this right now. Lafayette, Indiana, rent or buy? Um, Our executive producer is Purdue Grant. Be careful. Okay. Yeah, no, he's setting so, a trap for you. So you're, so you're setting a trap for me. So that's a great place to be a homeowner, but I think the entire society is shifting slightly to more, more towards rentals. And uh, it's it. There's a lot of reasons behind it, Tom. We we could be here all day. There's, it's Let's a, do that, it's David. A, jump in here all day on red or buy. Well, we, we were talking about uh, what a president could do here. Should the president be more concerned with affordability and, and with availability of housing when you look at, at what policy could do? Are there things that the government could be doing to to influence that? Uh, I think the government's been trying a lot, uh, other than the CFPB that's made the mortgage documentation really tight. So that, that that's holding some things back. But we, we actually, people don't realize this, the down payment requirements are the lowest ever. Mm. More than half of all loans are putting less than 10% down. We have a 3.5% interest rate. I mean, what else do you want? Uh, the FHA is, is there to insure everybody. Uh, Fannie and Freddie is is changing policy to now allow you to rent out a room and count that towards qualifying for a mortgage. The, the mortgage policy has been pretty positive, but there's other things that the government. Well, the economy matters. Confidence matters. Uh, I mentioned this last time I was with Tom. The mortgage interest deduction is gone accidentally, because with a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage and a four percent interest rate, you get eight grand in deductible interest, but the standard deduction is twelve thousand six hundred. So the the tax incentive in Topeka, Kansas, and Lafayette, Indiana, is no longer yeah, there. Yeah, David, this is a huge wake up call for people. They affect the transaction, and on April tenth, they go, "You're kidding." Mm. Huge deal. I wonder if the the housing stock is keeping up with the the trend the the trend that you're mentioning there. That is, it, it, I wonder how easy it is to find a place to rent in in Lafayette, Indiana, or Topeka, Kansas. Uh, are we seeing the stock change to to reflect that trend toward renting? 
Oh, absolutely. And in fact, the, the stock is single family rental homes, which are doing very well in Lafayette and Topeka and everywhere. If you, you, we now have publicly traded companies. They're disclosing they're raising rents 5% per year. It's a great option to get into a good school district. If I lose my job next year, hey, I don't have a mortgage. Mm. It, it's a great option. I, I um, you know, I'm, I'm curious here when you when you look at deficits in the housing sector, when you look at the economic indicators, what stands out most to you? What's the what's the biggest deficit still there? The biggest deficit. The biggest problem with the housing housing economy right now. Um, it really, there, there's there's not a lot of problems. Yeah. It's it, it it's just right. recovering slow. It's the it's the the economic <clears throat> recovery. We have a collective memory of multifamily housing. My collective memory, I guess, the one impact was being in Nashville, Tennessee a million years ago, and literally, as far as the eye could see, there were condos. We talk about a housing shortage, and clearly that's in the big cities, et cetera, but is it good or bad, or are we indifferent to the condo boom that we, we remember from another time? Do we want that? No, I, I don't think we want that, although I think the demand for that type of product is the highest ever. We're probably overbuilding it. The, the issue is construction costs. We just can't build affordable condos, Tom. So you're, you're going after a slice of very affluent people that maybe okay, want but, that type but of lifestyle. But to David's point on policy prescription, how do we start building your world without a granite countertop, without a kitchen bigger than the house where David and I live? I mean, I mean, Tucker's got, what do you got, a three-room kitchen out in New Jersey? <laughs> Two fireplaces. Like two fireplaces in the kitchen. <laughs> How do we get back, John Burns, seriously to building middle class and poor housing? We're not there, are we? So it's it's government regulation at the federal level and at the local level. Their their mandate the school fees are through the roof. The permits are through the roof. You do the math and you're sixty, seventy thousand dollars in and all you've got is some land. So how can I provide build a house and sell it for two hundred thousand dollars with those type of fees and costs and regulatory environment? I can't. The build you, you were talking earlier about the drought in California. The builders have to sandbag around every single house just in case it rains, so no nails run off into the ocean. Okay, that that's good for the environment, but that that costs them thousands of dollars per house. They can't sell a house affordably when that type of regulation is involved. What about existing homes? We were talking about billionaires row here in in, in Manhattan. Uh, we had a guest on a few weeks back talking about Greenwich and the stock of, of, of homes in Greenwich just aren't selling. Uh, so looking at sort of the higher end of, of single-family homes, what's going to happen with, with that marketplace? Okay, that, that's the super, 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 sure. super high end. And I, it, housing, again, is local. So tax increases in, in Connecticut, hedge funds, uh, get assets being pulled out of hedge funds, that kills Greenwich. But Greenwich and Billionaires Row are probably the two examples in the country of high, super high end that are falling dramatically. They're the only two. We talked about Lafayette. We talked about Topeka. What are the, the places you're looking to? What are the, the regions or the cities that have experienced a, a lot of growth that you think will be experiencing more growth going forward? Uh, it's very simple. It's the South. It, it's Texas. Uh, it's Florida. It's the Carolinas. Where can I buy a home for $250,000, have a decent job? Those are low-income right. tax areas. That, that's where the country's growing. In fact, it's twice the growth rate in those states than uh, right. up here. Then I want to circle back to David's original question to you. I believe that geography put a new president in the office as he goes to the White House today to meet with President Obama. What does Donald Trump need to do to help that, that core market get a better real estate investment over five years, 10 years, 20 years? What's he need to do? Is it tax? You know, it, it's it's the economy. 
I mean, it really, it is the economy. We need to get wage growth. We need to get people saving. That's what's going to drive home demand. It's, John, it's not tweaks to policy. John Burns, thank you so much. John Burns Real Estate, what a wonderful treat to have you in here so close to the election as we look at uh, really what is one of the key investments uh, that we see. It has been a most interesting day. We had the privilege of David Harrow, investor in Chicago, uh, on his Wisconsin. We did not know that David Harrow's wisdom would be critical to the Trump victory. We look at, I'm going to kill the pronunciations, David, Waukesha Brown. Waukesha. Waukesha. I'll see if Mr. Harrow corrects me. Audigami. Racine, Winnebago, I know that one, Washington and Kenosha. These are counties across the state of uh, Wisconsin. David Harrell, what was the biggest surprise as Wisconsin really made a difference back in 1984? Well, I think the magnitude was the surprise. And again, I just have to chuckle. I've always loved statistics and analytics. Uh, and I looked at the poll numbers, and there were a couple polls that had them close, but the magnitude of the of the uh, error in the polling, and same thing with the U.S. Senate race with Senator Johnson uh, just destroying Senator former Senator Feingold, and it was supposed to be a close race, and a month ago he was down by 10 points. I mean, something is really wrong with the way they're measuring opinion. And Wisconsin looked close, and I heard from people up there that there was going to be a strong get-out-the-vote. But the magnitude of the win in Wisconsin, um, I think that was the biggest surprise, was the magnitude. What do you think what was, uh, was the factor at play there? I think there'll be a long debate here over you know, whether someone was underestimated, whether we underestimated the ground game. Uh, what, do you think, what do you think happened? I think, actually, quite simply, there just wasn't the enthusiasm for uh, Secretary Clinton as there was for, for Mr. Trump. And as a result, the typical Democrats didn't go out and vote because there were things about her perhaps they didn't like. And even though you know, died in the wall, typical Republicans were yeah. in love with Trump. Trump has a following. And I, I guess we didn't know how big or how small it was until Tuesday. But the, he has this following. And whereas a lot of the Clinton supporters were just anti-Trump people, a lot of the Trump supporters were consisted of, A, anti-Clinton, and B, he had a strong pocket of support. David, we were talking a couple um, of days ago about the, the, the rhetoric and how the rhetoric that Donald Trump used on the campaign trail in Wisconsin resonated with voters there. Now comes the, the, the burden of expectations on Donald Trump's shoulders. He spoke to these people. He promised them change. Uh, are you optimistic he's going to be able to deliver it? And let's let's get down to policy. What does he need to do to improve the situation in Wisconsin? Well, he won't be able to improve everything uh, that he said he's going to do in, in the way he said, but he hopefully can make things better. Now, Wisconsin, you know, the unemployment rate in Wisconsin, I believe, is 4.1%, 4.2%. It isn't doing so poorly. But again, it had been hit by this loss of manufacturing jobs, and that's one of the things. And it isn't the loss of manufacturing jobs. I think it's the political correctness and, you know, this type of thing. It's, it's kind of the soft underbelly that has kind of uh, upset yeah. and alerted people. Is it just the manufacturing? It's just this whole, you know, everyone gets a trophy. You know, there's 
gender bathrooms. The crime thing in Milwaukee, you know, you had a situation where you had a black police officer shooting a black man. And there were rights for three or four days. Yeah. And incidentally, in the park, I used to picnic in. David Harrow, it is 227 miles from Speaker Ryan's uh, abode just north of the Illinois border. And if you go up to Green Bay, which I believe you've darkened the door of a few times, and then you go. Title f- Town, USA Town. You Tidal go Town, further USA. north. The, the, this is about Trump. You go further north to Florence, Wisconsin. They have 265 lakes, none of which Donald Trump has fished on. Would you explain to me how Florence County, Wisconsin, on the Canadian border, went large for a billionaire on Fifth Avenue in New York? Because they were just tired of the political class and the rhetoric, and they think that the people think that um, people, our elected leaders don't understand them, they don't represent them. And that was, I think, what uh, Donald was able to do was to convince these people that he does understand them. And I think that that was part of the phenomena around the country. And you saw it in all these counties. I mean, you see these maps of, uh, you know, the red-blue maps, and they're actually quite phenomenal of, of the, the, the breadth outside of the metropolitan areas of, of his support. Same thing with Iowa, by the way. I mean, I think Iowa it could even be the bigger surprise. And, and the magnitude of the Iowa win. Are you, are you worried here that if, if the conversation shifts under a President Trump to bringing back manufacturing jobs, something will be lost in terms of keeping up with where manufacturing uh, is headed? We, we see such dramatic changes in technology in terms of where things are headed. If the focus is simply on getting jobs back, uh, do we lose ground on, on technological development? Yeah, I don't think, you know, I'm, again, of kind of a free market ilk, and I don't think you should try to manipulate policy in such a way. I think what you should do mm-hmm. is make, provide a fertile ground for businesses to thrive. And really what's happened is we've done just the opposite in the last eight years. I'm not saying add anything. I'm saying don't add disincentives. Do not over-regulate. Do not make regulation unclear. Uh, unclear regulation is very unuseful. Right. And, and, you know, this is, it breeds corruption. It breeds, uh, you know, people in, ac- in action. And I think if you have a clear and transparent regulation, and if you try to do things that make trade, for instance, more even. And right. you have to deal. And I thought, I, you know, I thought we kind of did a pretty good job dealing with people who were afflicted by the negatives of trade agreements. Maybe we didn't do enough. But I thought, you know, didn't we retrain workers? And there's big pots of money set aside for these people. So I don't think we should stop free trade. I think it's free mm-hmm. trade is very important in allowing outsourcing. <clears throat> right. But on the other hand, if someone wants to set up a business, don't make it so difficult for them. Uh, David, let's set up and maintain their business. Let's switch to what matters, and it's not the Chicago Cubs. It's investment in your Oakmark International Fund. With this, with this regime change, if you will, with the higher rates we've observed the last few days, with futures in the market up four or 500 Dow points, do you change your international investment stance? And should our listeners add to shares this morning? 
Well, here's what's happened uh, until recently, is there's been a very dichotomous market. You've had certain sectors, consumer discretionary, financials, industrials, way underpriced, way underpriced. And then you had other sectors, um, utilities, healthcare, telecoms, the safe sectors, consumer staples, way overpriced. So you had a very dichotomous market in terms of valuation. And I'm not saying they should be trading on top of each other or saying multiples, but Daimler was at eight and you Levers at 22 times earnings. That's just too much. And I think what we're going to see is that's going to start to even out a little bit. It won't be even, and it shouldn't be even. But I think that, you know, Daimler should trade at 10 or 11, and Unilever should trade at 15 or 16. It should be a 50% premium, not a 200%, 300% premium. And I think that's what we're about to see. And if that happens, it will be very good for how we're positioned in our funds. Because, again, we're value investors. We value businesses based on their ability to generate cash flow and the durability of that cash flow stream. Um, and where we found value uh, recently in the last year or two, where perhaps others have not have been in these sectors, the consumer discretionary luxury good companies, et cetera, financials, industrials. And I think we're going to start to see that valuation gap disappear. Now, it will not, and it should not disappear completely, but it shouldn't be as wide as it is today. David, we talk about uncertainty, capital U uncertainty. What part of that affects you most as an investor? Um, in the short term, regulatory and political changes really move share prices around. I would argue these things do not move the intrinsic value of the businesses around because they often do not have a long-term impact on the company's ability to generate cash. And what we have to do as investors is be able to differentiate what truly impacts the company's cash flow stream and what is just noise impacting the share price. But it's a challenge because if we're holding something that's falling in price dramatically because of a political pronouncement. You know, we have a lot of explaining to do to our clients and our shareholders and consultants, and, but you just have to stay disciplined. And often, I think, investors don't, you know, mm-hmm. would rather take the easy route and not to explain and just sell out. And I think well, this is what differentiates good investors from bad investors. What differentiates David Harrow is he's got to not give a hat trick of loss, losses for the Packers. Good luck with the Titans <laughs> uh, this weekend. Mr. Harrow is an investor from Chicago, and he is someone with a great affection for the people of the state of Wisconsin. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Now joining us, uh, someone with a new job title. He's part of the transition team for President Trump. He will be the <laughs> Fifth Avenue czar. We all welcome Stephen Ratner. You, only you can help us with Midtown Manhattan for the next four years. Uh, what have you observed so far as you've been stuck in traffic? <laughs> what I've observed are more sanitation trucks than I've ever seen in one place. Blocking, uh, blocking Trump Tower is going to be a nightmare there until 
January 20th or whenever he decamps. It would be wonderful if he'd go to Bedminster yeah. for the duration. This is not <laughs> Kennebunkport, is it? <laughs> this is not Kennebunkport. Um, I want to go back to a chart you threw up on Morning Joe uh, a number of weeks ago, not even, I don't know, maybe two weeks ago, That's on the Affordable Care Act. People would go, Steve Ratner on the Affordable Care Act, and yet you're actually really up to speed on it. What can Trump supporters and Clinton supporters expect from the amendment and adjustment of Obamacare? If you take them at face value, they're going to repeal and replace. We don't have any idea what they're going to replace it with. Uh, I think that cooler heads will prevail, and I don't think it's going to be day one. Let's just repeal the Affordable Care Act and figure out what we do next. But I think a number of the elements of it, particularly the subsidies um, uh, and the expansion of Medicaid may go. And so the, the consequence will be there are 20 million people who have gotten coverage under the Affordable Care Act in one form or another. And I think you'll see that number go down. Some of the provisions like um, uh, no, uh, not denying coverage for pre-existing conditions, keeping kids up until the age of 26 are so politically popular that I suspect they stay right. in place. Trump has also talked about selling insurance, allowing insurance to be sold across state lines, which has some some good and some bad aspects to that. Um, I think you'll see a major restructuring of it pretty quickly and and uh, a loss of coverage for a lot of people. And Steve, what you're so good at then with, a, with a, seriously your public service with Detroit years ago is the melding of legislature with executive, with judicial. Do you assume a judicial response, lawsuits, et cetera, to try to block Trump medical care? I see no basis for that. Uh, it was hard enough to get judicial approval of Obamacare if he wants to repeal parts of it uh, and replace it with other things that are, in fact, less of an invasion of the state, uh, you know, as, as the Republicans would put it, into the private sector. Why would the courts have any problem with that? Okay. A Republican talking point uh, after that law was passed was that it was so mammoth it would be very difficult to, to repeal, that it isn't, had bled into so many parts of the government it would be hard to, to, to rip out. Uh, is there truth to that? When, when you talk about a, a wholesale repeal of this law, how difficult would that be? I can't speak to every, every piece of it, but it doesn't strike me that it would be that difficult to simply reduce the subsidies, as I said, uh, reduce the Medicaid expansion, curtail the time in which the federal government will pay 95% of the cost of the Medicaid expansion. Those are all pretty simple legislative things. I think the question that the Republicans are going to have to ask themselves is that all these so-called massive premium increases affected about 3% of Americans. Got a lot of headlines about 3% of Americans. There are 20 million Americans who are benefiting from Obamacare. And if, and politically, a lot of them are actually Trump supporters. These are people at the lower end of the of the economic spectrum. And so they're going to have to decide whether they really want to uh, take something away from these people that they now feel they have. When Donald Trump and, and Mike Pence sit down with uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan today for lunch uh, at the Capitol, as they're going to do, what do they have to figure out here? We're talking about health care reform. Paul Ryan has what he'd like to be at the top of the legislative agenda. What do you think is going to, when this all gets sorted out, what's Congress going to tackle here in the next few months and indeed in the, fir the first term? First term. Here's what, here's, first of all, it's important to note that Ronald Reagan did not have a majority of either house. Donald Trump is arriving with support of both houses. So you are going to see a, Republic, a Reagan revolution potentially on steroids. There is essentially very close agreement between Trump and Paul Ryan on the tax side of the equation. Their tax plans are very, very similar. Where there is disagreement is over this, what I'll call the spending side, entitlement reform, uh, how much you do on infrastructure and how you pay for that, 
and how you keep the deficit from getting out of control. And that's where I think there are some philosophical differences and where there'll be a lot of wood to chop. There's also a huge philosophical difference on trade. Trump can do a lot of the stuff on trade by executive authority. Uh, whether he's going to be willing to break with the rank-and-file Republicans on the Hill to do it, uh, we will find out. But I think there's so much common ground between their plans that I think you will see uh, a massive a massive reorientation and deregulation, a massive reorientation of the government's priorities. I was Steve, with, well, go ahead. Real, real quick here, I was talking to Eric Cantor Please. yesterday. He, he, he was on, we were talking, he tasted, of course, that populism that has spread uh, back in 2014 yes, he when he lost he his a seat. Little nick of it. Yeah, but he said there's going to be a tension here between Donald Trump pushing for this infrastructure spending and then part of the Republican caucus here that is, they'll say, more, more into fiscal discipline. How, how tight is that tension going to be? Look, I think there there is pretty broad agreement that we need to do something on infrastructure. I think Trump's plan is at the is at the big end of the spectrum, and I think the uh, Republican caucus will try to pull him back. And so, as I said, I think the I think on the revenue side, there's a lot of common ground. On the expenditure side, there's more wood to chop, but but they're going to get stuff done. They're going to get a lot of stuff done. Yesterday was one of those days where you seek therapy, or at least the wisdom of a professional. Stephen Ratner with us, Willard Advisors, who oftentimes wanders over to observe off the Bloomberg terminal, the equity markets, negative futures, gloom, 11 p.m. election night, David Gurra looking at negative 600 or whatever it was points, negative 300 points near the market opening. And there it was, Steve Ratner, green on the screen. I saw the Dow print green, and I'm like, well, they got to open the shares. Then the green stay green, and up, up, up we go. What does a day like that signal to you? Uh, it signals to me that anyone who thinks they can predict equity markets should uh, go into analysis because, uh, as you know, during the campaign, every time it looked like Trump was doing better, the markets went down every, and vice versa. Justin Wolfers, among many other people, tracked all this, had very precise calculations for what would happen if Trump won. And for, as you say, for the first 15 minutes, it looked like they were right. And then everybody said, wait a minute, what about all the stimulus? What about all the infrastructure? What about Caterpillar? What yeah, about all this? I will. And the market <laughs> completely rolled, you know, went the other way. And it's, uh, it, is, it is humbling, shall we I, say, I will, humbling. Uh, David, uh, 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 pontificate to those of Cornell and Brown. It's amazing the lack of microeconomic foundations within the media. It's just, can there, can there be a requirement, Steve, to take microeconomics before you get a mic in front of you? Hey, I've, I'm all for that. I believe in that. But, but you, got, you had uh, thousands of highly trained professionals, PhDs, uh, uh, who, who, got this, who got it wrong. It's just, uh, it is very humbling. And it was a lesson to me as an investor, don't try to time markets. We've been talking about uncertainty throughout the morning, talked about it yesterday as well uh, from an investment perspective. How long does that uncertainty continue? We heard from Donald Trump obviously late in the, the evening, early in the morning uh, after Election Day. Uh, he goes to the White House today. Uh, what clarity do we need for some of that uncertainty to allay? I, I, first of all, obviously the market isn't bothered about the uncertainty at the moment. The bond market's pretty spooked, but the equity markets are happy. I think it's literally months because, first of all, Donald Trump was on his meds for one speech, and we have to see how long that persists. But even if he acts perfectly rationally, as we have talked about, there's a lot of wood to chop between him and the rest of the Republicans. We're in uncharted waters with respect to a number of the policy proposals 
that he's put forth and whether he'll pursue them. So I think there's, uh, I think you're going to see a lot of volatility in the next at least six months. Some exuberance in the banking sector yesterday it was forecasted that the financial sector would do well if he were to be elected uh, president. Let's talk about financial reform. They're and, closing and their midtown branches. They're closing because <laughs> like people can't get to them because of the uh, sanitation trucks and security. But uh, w- what about financial reform? Again, we we talked about health care reform, how he wants to to rip that out and 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 perhaps do something different. When you look at financial reform, what's Donald Trump said? What do you expect to happen there? Well, first of all, the, the banks got a double positive whammy, of course. They got they got rates going up, which is great for their NIM. And they've got now uh, Donald Trump saying he's going to repeal, I don't know what his exact words are, but essentially gut in one form or another, Dodd-Frank. Uh, there's talk of them uh, rolling back the fiduciary standard for investment advisors. Uh, I think it is going to be a field day in Washington for financial services. And even as a member of that community, I think some of that may well be unfortunate because we needed more regulation. We needed to avoid some of the problems we've had in the past. But the, the, but the market clearly thinks the banks are going right. to have a field day. This is why we love having you on, because you go right to the observation of the what you did as czar. I mean, we make jokes about it, folks, but I'm sorry. It was brutal meetings and, and a lot of back and forth and almost game theory within dialogue and within conversation. What kind of secretary of treasury does this nation need? We've had John Connolly of Texas wounded with JFK. We've had, we, we, as a governor of Texas, we've had Henry Paulson. We've had uh, the wonderfully competent Jacob Lew. What do we need in a treasury secretary for an original president? I think the best treasury secretaries, and I say this obviously from my own warped perspective, have probably come out of the financial sector because they understand uh, microeconomics, as you say, macroeconomics, markets, but uh, the Hank Paulsons, the Bob Rubens uh, uh, of the world uh, are, I think, the kind of uh, – certainly uh, Jack Lew did very well. Tim Geithner was great uh, – are the kinds of treasury secretaries we need. And also, honestly, I will tell you from my own experience and from observation, anyone going into the government without prior government experience is walking a perilous course. It is a different kind of business than running a company or running a bank. And so without naming names, we can all think back on people – who came into senior government jobs with no prior understanding that the public sector is different from the prior sector, and inevitably they failed badly. Uh, you say that, and I think immediately of Donald J. Trump. I mean, what, is, what does he face in terms of figuring out that, that apparatus? It was one of the many reasons why I had trouble imagining him being as president. I think he has a lot of figuring out to do, and, uh, and I, think that leads, I think that is part and parcel of the uncertainty that we're, that we're looking at. I asked Eric Cantor yesterday if expertise matters in Washington, if experience and expertise matter today. Again, he faced uh, an outsider beating him in 2014. He, he worked with, with outsiders who had come into Congress, and there hasn't been a whole lot of congressional action. What does experience count for today in Washington? Oh, I think experience still matters in Washington in a, in a job like president or secretary of the treasury. You, know, you can come in as a congressman, which is like starting uh, you know, as an investment analyst in our firm and work your way up. That's fine. That's how you get your experience. But to have a senior leadership job, uh, let alone president, with no, experience, no relevant experience, uh, I think mm-hmm. is going to be very, very tricky right. business. Mr. Rettner, how do you respond to those that are optimistic of a Reagan approach, which is a single sheet of paper on decisions, hand Ronnie the paper and he'll make a decision because he's delegated tons of authority? Does that work in the world of 2016? Well, I don't. I don't know how Trump is going to choose to govern. If he chooses to hire good people, 
uh, as Reagan did in many cases, tell them his philosophy, which is, you know, Reagan always liked to be very simple and to the point, and then let them go do stuff and give him, as you say, a single sheet of paper to check a box. It could work fine if, if you want a conservative government. If Trump decides, as, he, as he's done in his business life, that he wants to pick the shape of the doorknobs uh, in, a, in a world where he does not understand how doorknobs work, it could be it could be a lot of chaos, and I, there's no way to know. We can all guess at this, but we're in uncharted waters. When you heard Donald Trump speak, uh, or heard the speech that Donald Trump gave, I know it was late in the night. Um, what stood out to you? W- were there any signs of optimism for you in what he had to say uh, uh, early in the morning on Wednesday? I think that I don't think there were there were not many specifics. I think generally it was the right tone, it was the right level of conciliatoryness, uh, if that's a word. Uh, it made it made I, I think it did contribute to the positive reaction of the market that this guy was smart enough to know that he you remember at some at some point during the primaries he said you know I can be I can act presidential it'll be really boring but I can act presidential uh, and I'll do it when I have to and hopefully we are at that point. If you become infrastructure czar, can you just get 58th Street fixed? <laughs> I think any chance of my being infrastructure czar disappeared about 48 hours ago. <laughs> Very good thing. Steve Ratner with his political analysis on his future. He is with Willett Advisors. We go to uh, really most one of the most wonderful academics in America, Nariana Kachalakota, of course, always associated with Minneapolis economics, now holding court uh, in the uh, long winter of Rochester, New York, at the, at the University of Rochester. Um, President Kachalakota, good morning. Thank you for having me on. Wonderful to have you on. I want to go back to a conversation with Willem Bauder the other day, which is the idea we're at the zero bound. We've got the oddity of the great distortion. Donald Trump, President-elect Trump, has an IS curve that's near vertical, somewhere in that vicinity. And he is going to institute fiscal policy to migrate the IS curve, I believe, to the right. Is it a normal model, Professor? And is President-elect Trump going to have normal economics? Or are we so messed up in our microeconomics and our macroeconomics that he's got an original task ahead? No, I, I think actually um, the, the, the unconventionality of the situation is largely driven by uh, the effective lower bound or the zero lower bound on interest rates. Uh, anything that, we, that moving the uh, IS curve to the right is a positive from that point of view, that it's going to uh, push us toward a situation where our interest rates are higher around the world and make the situation much, much more conventional and, and uh, much less confusing, I think, for both market participants and for, uh, for central banks. Was that good enough, David, that ISLM, you know, mini course? I appreciate it. That's good. John Tucker nodding. Just didn't understand That's it, right. but we appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> David. Let, let me ask you about the, the, the effects of this stimulus package uh, and how your former colleagues at the Fed are, are, are viewing what's happening here, uh, they being apolitical and all of that. But, but what does this mean for, for, for their calculus here, watching this unfold, watching uh, the first steps of it today when, when uh, the president-elect meets with the House Speaker? So I, I think that uh, 
I'll, let me talk about the economics, and then I'll talk a little bit of the politics, which is uh, certainly not my area of expertise. But on the economics, I think the, the uh, stimulus package is uh, going to put upward pressure on prices and employment, coming from the fact that the government's uh, uh, buying more goods and services, employing more people. That's just all putting upward pressure on, on, on uh, prices and employment. As well, you will see a, a potentially an increase in projected debt for the U.S. This is going to put upward pressure on interest rates. All of this is going to would mean that the Fed, uh, in order to hit its inflation target, would be thinking about raising rates uh, more rapidly. Uh, so that's just on the stimulus front. The counterbalance to that is there's a lot of uncertainty about uh, uh, the new administration's trade policies. Uh, and I think that counterbalance is probably what will win in the thinking of the Fed is uh, we don't know how those trade policies are going to affect the global economy going forward. And, and that's going to argue for prudence in monetary policy. So that's all on the economics front. On the politics front, um, the trade policy stuff, as far as I can understand, I, I know the legalities of it. The administration has a lot of uh, scope to do that on its own without um, – a congressional approval on the on the stimulus front that uh, uh, that all has to come with congressional approval, and so that's going to depend on the uh, <laughs> details of the negotiations between the new president and uh, his Republican colleagues. Do you think this is inherently a, a good thing? We have heard the cries for fiscal stimulus from central bankers around the world. We are getting some of it, and, and if it is a good thing, how much does size matter? How much does content matter at this point? Well, from the Fed's point of view, I think size is the big deal. I, uh, you know, we're, uh, the Fed is about macroeconomic objectives, and so size is the is the main objective there. Obviously, if you're a voter, if you're an interested voter, you're uh, a member of the public, you do care about composition in a big way. But from the Fed's point of view or central bank's point of view, you're just trying to generate more demand, and uh, um, and I, so I, th- I don't think I think size mm. is really the big determinant there. Uh, Nariana Kachalakota with us of uh, the University of Rochester and, of course, with the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis uh, for years. Uh, on the robustness of laissez-faire, Kachalakota Phelan, on the robustness of laissez-faire, and there's a different ways to take this, but I think the heart of it, Nariana, is the idea of a zero-sum America. A lot of Trump economics, at least within the campaign, was not isolationist, but just no one could win. There's a zero-sum economics to it. Does the, does the president-elect affect that forward, or is he going to have to move away from a more mercantilist view? That's a great question, Tom. And I, 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 I think that the, the, the fact we've been at the effect of lower bound and constrained by demand throughout the world has created a vision, a zero-sum vision for so many people. Yeah. And I think that Trump tapped into that. <clears throat> what I really like about the fiscal stimulus is I think it can get us away from the effect of lower bound, not just here, but globally, mm-hmm. and create and recreate a world in which uh, it's not zero-sum. If I invent, <clears throat> invent something, it, it expands the frontier for everybody, and it's a good right. thing for everybody. Okay, but you were out of Princeton, and then you did your economics at Chicago, the land of Jacob Viner. His classic paper of the 1940s, Power in Plenty, was the fear of mercantilism out of World War II. There's politic overlay here. Yep. Atlantic Charter, Gap, Gat, and all the rest. Are we going to go into a new mercantilistic age, not the same as the worry of 46-48, but is the great fear here a mercantilist America? I think that you know, as long as people have this perception of the economy as being zero-sum, it's a 
big political risk that um, they're going that 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 you're going to see uh, bigger trade barriers spring up uh, between America and its its partners. Uh, it really behooves, I think, policymakers to, to institute pro-growth policies, as International Monetary Fund has been urging, in order to get us away from the effect of lower bound and and not have us constrained by demand, but instead constrained by what's natural, by supplies, and, and that we're pushing against supply constraints and making everyone better off by doing so. Uh, Professor, thank you so much. Nariana Kachalakota with us from the University of Rochester on this uh, momentous day. Greatly appreciate his attendance. Love his work with Bloomberg View. Some smart, smart, always debatable, always controversial, smart essays uh, from uh, Professor and President Kachalakota. Joining us now in our studios in our world headquarters, Gina Raimondo of Providence. This is the most important interview of the day, and the president-elect does not want to go to the White House. He wants to have a good breakfast in a diner in Smithfield, Rhode Island, <laughs> with Governor Raimondo to talk about fiscal stimulus. It is legendary, the Huntington Viaduct is the mass of I-95 migrates east and west, and you have enjoyed the tangible headaches of what the prima donnas of Washington will talk about. You have the worst bridges mm -hmm. in the nation, and I say this with the rigor of a Rhode Island winter, and I don't mean it with any um, uh, a detriment, but the fact is you have the worst bridges in the yes. nation. What do you need from President-elect Trump and the Republicans in the House and the Senate for the Democratic st stronghold of Rhode Island? Yeah, good morning, by the good way. Morning. It's great to be with we, you. We, we good dispense with that. You dispense with that. <laughs> you know, we're Happy just to rude. be here. By this time, we're rude. <laughs> So you're right, by the way, we do have the worst bridges in America, which is a problem. And one of the first things I did as governor is I worked with our local legislature to uh, pass a bill we called Roadworks, which is a billion-dollar road program. But we need money from the federal government. The federal government needs to show up, do its job, and pass a responsible infrastructure bill to send money to the states like Rhode Island so that we can have bridges that aren't crumbling. And... I hate to say it's just money, except in this case, it is. I mean, I think we can all agree to the benefits mm -hmm. of better, safer, newer infrastructure. And the federal government just needs to step up because no one state is ever going to have, you know, enough money to be able to do everything that we need. Governor, you had some protesters outside the state house uh, last night on the heels of, of the election. Tom talking about uh, how that infrastructure package could benefit you and your state. What are your, your hopes, your prospects of uh, uh, reconciliation, a, a good relationship here with the new president? Well, I think we have to try. I mean, we do have to try and we have to hope that it can happen. I was, of course, very disappointed Wednesday morning. I woke up and there were a lot of tears in my household from my son and daughter. Um, but now we got to move on. And I have a job to do, right? I'm the governor of Rhode Island. I still have a lot of people out of work. We have poor infrastructure. So I have to find a way to work with this new administration and be a relentless advocate for Rhode Island. And that's what I plan to do. You were treasurer of the state uh, and, and dealt with uh, pension problems in, in Rhode Island. There are a number of other states and municipalities dealing with those as well. How applicable is, is what you were able to do in Rhode Island to those other places? I think it's directly applicable. Uh, solving difficult fiscal issues like pensions, like Medicaid, 
You know, it turns out that the actual policy solution isn't the hard part. Um, we knew what had to happen, raising retirement ages, getting rid of cost of living increases. The hard part's the politics, which just comes down <clears throat> to, like, a leader having the yeah. political stomach to right. do it. I want to go way off script here. You clerked for Kim Kimberwood. <laughs> I did. A million years ago. Yeah. Hey, it, it, not <laughs> that many years ago. Okay. No, but politically, it seems That's like... That's the second it, insult it, of the me. Wow. Let, let me rephrase this, if I may, young yes, Tucker. Yes, please. Please. Uh, Rhode Island is a state north northeast of New Jersey, in case <laughs> you wanted to understand that. Um, you clerked for Kimba Wood. Help us here with how Mr. Trump, distant from you, yeah. needs to select Supreme Court judges that have a certain elan like you saw from Judge Wood. Judge Wood is an extraordinary judge. I did. I had the pleasure of clerking for her right after I got out of law school. She's amazing. And I hope he picks people like her who are fair and not overly political, don't bring their ideology to the bench, and are of keen intellect. Is and that interested feasible? In Can the Senate drive that discussion? Do you have an optimism to move away from the certitude that we heard within the election? Uh, I don't know. Is You're going off script, so I'll be very candid. I don't know, but for the sake of the nation, I hope that they can. I hope they can put justice and fairness above politics because people deserve it. And I saw it when I clerked. You know, Hundreds of litigants come before you. They just want a fair shake. They don't want to be treated mm. with politics and ideology. What happens to the, the anger that I'm sure you saw in, in Rhode Island as well? The, the state, of course, went for, for Secretary Clinton, but um, the anger exists. And what happens to it now that, that we, we have a new president, we have a president-elect? Uh, how, how do we channel that into something positive? I think uh, people like me and, and leaders in public office have to spend a lot more time listening. You know, I think what, what you're hearing, people are saying, pay attention to me. And so it's incumbent upon all of us from the president on down to get out in the community and open our ears to what people are really anxious about and then try to address their needs and concerns. She is the 75th governor of the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. I love saying that. Dignified it name. Speak, <laughs> speaks to a, another time. Governor Raimondo, thank you so much. Gina uh, Raimondo. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.